Over the next uh, couple of months, we are going to be studying the eight Beatitudes found at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And I would like to read those Beatitudes today with you. If you would take your pew Bibles with me and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 uh, together. And the way it's going to happen is I'm going to, uh, to read verses 1 and 2. And then once we get into the beatitude, the blessed are the poor in spirit, etc., etc., I'm going to read the first clause. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then you as a congregation are going to respond with the promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, as we go through that, okay? And then I'll read uh, uh, verses 11 through 12. So would you stand with me as we read through this passage? And it's on page... Seven, uh, 785 in your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Amen. You may be seated. Our God in heaven, we pray as we listen to your word spoken to us now that you would meet each of us exactly, exactly where we need it. Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, you know our hearts better than even we do, and so Lord, we pray that your word would speak to us today, and I ask these things in the name of Jesus, amen. So first of all, what is this word beatitude? Okay, we don't really use that word um, every day, at least I don't. Uh, Beatitude is kind of a strange word, and all you really need to know here is that the Latin word for blessed, for blessed, is beatitudo. And the Latin translation of the Bible was the primary version of the Bible that was used for hundreds of years in the church, and eventually this group of teaching became to, came to be known as the Beatitudes, and the name stuck. And it simply means blessed. As you read through the Beatitudes, they're really pretty simple and straightforward. They aren't really complicated teachings. They, they aren't like Jesus' parables where we, we have to kind of figure out what he's talking about in this story and to try to make connections in that way. They're, they're fairly simple and direct. Uh, they aren't very complicated, and if you just kind of read them very quickly, they even seem a little bit benign. But, but the truth is, the Beatitudes are revolutionary. The characteristics described in the Beatitudes are completely contrary to our world's values and to our world's priorities. 
And if we understood the Beatitudes, and if we allow Christ to form these characteristics in our life, then the world would be turned upside down by them. In fact, the world has already been turned upside down by them because of one man's life who lived his life with the characteristic of the Beatitudes as Christ's life was lived uh, in this way. For those of you who are following along in your outline in your bulletin today, just know that today we're not going to get very, very far in this outline. In fact, we're just going to do point number one. <laughs> um, as I was finishing my sermon Friday afternoon and, and yesterday, I, I realized that uh, the introduction to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount was really uh, going to be too much to give blessed are the poor in spirit, the the time uh, that it deserved. So this morning, I'm simply going to give an introduction to the Beatitudes that will hopefully lay a good foundation as we look at each of these one by one over the next few weeks. So I think the reason that, that I believe God is, is leading us to go through this series over the next couple of months is because starting in February, uh, here at Broadway, we're going to begin Celebrate Recovery. It's going to be the, the first uh, week of that program. In, uh, the first week in February is going to be the first week of that program. And Celebrate Recovery, for those of you who don't know, is, is a Christ-centered re- recovery program used in thousands of churches across the U.S., And Celebrate Recovery uses the the 12 steps of the Alcoholics Anonymous as a part of their curriculum. But Celebrate Recovery is clear in its conviction that there is only one higher power that has the power to bring true and eternal healing in our lives, and that is Jesus Christ. And so as a part of Celebrate Recovery's curriculum um, is the Beatitudes that Jesus taught And I'm really excited about Celebrate Recovery for Broadway. I think it's a really great step for us here at Broadway. Uh, The organization of Celebrate Recovery in northern Indiana has been praying for a while that a um, a site would be um, provided downtown for people here downtown for it. They have a few different sites throughout Fort Wayne that are kind of scattered throughout the suburbs, and they were really hoping for a place for downtown. So we really believe that this is the Lord's leading for us, and I'm excited about that. And I really am, am praying that it'll be a success and that it'll be a great place where people are able to come and experience healing in their life. And, uh, and so I wanted to get a little bit of help from another pastor who, um, who was familiar with Celebrate Recovery. And so I contacted uh, Pastor Rick Hawks from the chapel. And uh, they've, they've been doing Celebrate Recovery for many years. And so um, I went out to eat with him and we sat down at Applebee's and had some, some wings together just to talk about, you know, the lessons that he learned, the mistakes that he made in getting this started at their church. And, and his primary suggestion to me was when you begin Celebrate Recovery, begin by teaching on the Beatitudes. Because Celebrate Recovery uses that as a part of their curriculum and a part of their teaching. And if you can begin to uh, get the understanding of the Beatitudes in the kind of DNA of your church, it's really going to go a long way to make this a success. And so Celebrate Recovery uh, talks, talks about how all of us, because of our sinful nature, have hurts, habits, and hang-ups. So that's the language that they use about the things that we're recovering from, that we all have hurts and habits and hang-ups. And these things keep us from true happiness in Christ. Some of us have these hurts, these, these things that we went through in our past that hurt us, things that people did to us or said to us that we continue to hold on to. 
And these hurts shape our identities in ways that are not healthy and that keep us from finding our true identity in Christ. And so Celebrate Recovery points us to Christ and the teachings of the Beatitudes to lead us to healing from those hurts. For some of us, we have habits and addictions or repeated sinful behaviors that are keeping us from Christ. We seek our happiness and our fulfillment in alcohol or drugs or pornography or shopping or food or fill in the blank for whatever it is for you. And Celebrate Recovery seeks to point people to Christ who is the source of blessedness and happiness and who can deliver us from our addictions. For some of us, we have our hang-ups. We have a relationship with a parent or a child or a spouse that just isn't right. Or maybe you have doubts about your faith. Or maybe you have frustrations with your job or you're struggling with depression. You know, there's just sometimes seasons in life where life is just kind of lame. And Celebrate Recovery is a, a place where you can come and be honest with that and share with others who are going through a similar season of life and be pointed with the help of those people around you, be pointed to Christ. And so over the next few weeks, I'll be sharing a bit more about Celebrate Recovery. But for this, this first thing I want to say to you is that Celebrate Recovery is open to everyone. And we usually think of recovery programs as something for alcoholics or for people who are addicted to drugs. And it's certainly, if, if that's something you're wrestling with, Celebrate Recovery is certainly for you. But Celebrate Recovery points out that all of us have our stuff. All of us can point to hurts or to habits, or to hang-ups in our lives that are keeping us from experiencing the fullness that comes through Christ. What I've already come to appreciate about Celebrate Recovery as I've been studying it over the last couple of months, and as I've uh, visited the chapel a couple times and witnessed it, is that they're very honest that all of us have our stuff, but they're very clear that we have a Savior who saves us from them. That these are things in our lives that don't have to rule our lives. Our primary identity is not found in our brokenness. Our primary identity is found in Christ. If you've uh, never been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you know, even if you've never been there, how the introduction to those meetings go, right? They've actually become kind of a part of our culture. You've seen it on TV or in movies, right? So how does it go? Let's pretend for a moment that we're at an AA meeting. Okay, and this is how it goes, right? Hello, my name is Ryan, and I'm an alcoholic. There you go. Now, Celebrate Recovery does introductions too, but they do them differently. This is the way that it goes at Celebrate Recovery meetings. And notice the difference. Ready? If I was at a Celebrate Recovery meeting, I would say this. Hello, my name is Ryan, and I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who struggles with issues of sexual integrity. That's right. Do you hear the difference? What we say about ourselves, about who we are, matters. Our I am statements matter. And as Christians, we must never allow our brokenness, our sin to define who we are. I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who struggles against all sorts of sin with the help of Christ. 
So Celebrate Recovery is a safe place to come and to be honest and open and vulnerable with others about your hurt or your habit or your hang-up and to be there with others who are struggling with the same thing. And so during this sermon series over the next couple of months, I'm going to be telling you a bit more about Celebrate Recovery. I would ask for you to pray about whether or not it's something that God would have you to be a part of. It's going to be on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock. It starts February the 9th. 7th. Starts February the 7th at 7 o'clock. Goes for two hours. We also need some more help for leaders and for volunteers to help out. And uh, so if you're interested in being a part of the team to help lead this and help out for that night, uh, Bill, if you just stand up real quick. This is Bill Dumbacher. This is the guy that you come to see and uh, talk with him about that. So uh, we do need some, some help for that. So please be, be praying for Celebrate Recovery. Be praying for this at our church. I'm excited about it and to see uh, what God does through it. So let's take a look at the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And just to set the scene for you a little bit, this is a sermon uh, that Jesus preaches at a, at a time when he was becoming more and more popular. There were lots of people coming to follow him. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 says that there were lots of crowds who came to him, and so he went up a little bit higher up onto a mountain, and he began to teach them. In the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest extended teaching about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And he begins this sermon by saying that people who are truly blessed, people who are truly happy, that they possess certain qualities— And what we notice about these qualities immediately, and the reason that the Beatitudes are so revolutionary, is that none of these qualities that Jesus talks about are valued by the world at all. There are many things that the world tells us that we must have if we are going to be happy, right? If we're going to be happy, we need to have material wealth, political power, authority and influence, Sexual fulfillment, physical beauty, a good job that pays six figures and gives us six weeks of vacation every year, popularity. There are many things that our culture tells us that we must have if we're going to live the good life. If we're going to be happy, then we need to have these things. And we're told in all sorts of ways, through advertising and through entertainment and through television and the radio and even in school, in all sorts of ways, in ways that are very obvious and also ways that are very subtle, the world tells us that we need to possess these sorts of things if we're going to be happy. Now, none of those things that I've listed are necessarily sinful, necessarily bad things at all. In fact, they're good things, but they completely miss the list (laughs) that Jesus gives to us about what it means to be blessed, about what it means to be happy. Having material wealth or authority or influence or a good job is just fine, but what Jesus teaches is that none of those things have any bearing at all about whether or not a person is spiritually mature or even whether they are right before God at all. And because of that, they can never lead us to true happiness and to true contentment. We are not blessed because we have all of those things. In the Beatitudes, we discover that Jesus has a very different definition of the good life that the world knows nothing about. And so he teaches us, he teaches his disciples about what it means to be truly blessed, truly satisfied and content, truly happy. And so Jesus opens his Sermon on the Mount with these eight statements about the blessed life and 
These eight statements, they follow a pattern. And we uh, had you read it in order to emphasize this pattern. There is a statement about what it means, uh, about blessedness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then a second statement about a promise about what believers possess or what they will possess. I want you to notice that the first one and the last one are different than all of the others. The first one and the last one say that there is something that the blessed person possesses now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The promise in the first and last one are the same. They say that the blessed person now experiences the kingdom of heaven. Or another way we could say it is that the blessed person now experiences the rule of God, the reign of God in their lives. They are under the authority of the king. Now, the middle six are different. There is a statement of blessing, but then there's a promise of what that blessed person will receive later. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It points us to the future. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. So the first and the last talk about these two statements that are about the present reality for those who are blessed. And then there are six promises of what will be true of the blessed person. Do you see that? Now, I don't know what it means. I just thought it was neat. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I do kind of know what it means. Um, At least a part of what it means. And I want to I want to explain what that, those distinctions there about that present reality and that future reality. I want to explain that by talking a little bit about how different streams or traditions in the church have interpreted the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. There's one view about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, these, all these different views have different ideas about how the Sermon on the Mount relates to our present life as well as to our future life. And there's one view that has been taught, we'll call it the, the future kingdom view. It says that the Sermon on the Mount isn't primarily about the present day, but that the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the way that things will be in the future when he comes again. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' new law that will be put into effect when he comes again and establishes his kingdom in the future. That's the future kingdom view. Another view, and this was was taught by by Martin Luther, and by the way, 2017 is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the wall of the Wittenberg door, the the kind of the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. So this uh, view uh, was of the Sermon on the Mount was taught by Martin Luther, and, and what he taught is, if you know anything about Martin Luther, you know that He just really despised anything that sounded like works righteousness. Like anything that sounded that we could do anything at all to make ourselves 
pleasing or right before God because he was really coming up against uh, the Catholic teaching of the day, which had these ways that we could work our way uh, to God. And so Luther was very against this work righteousness. And so he taught that the primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, there were other purposes as well, but the primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to reveal to us how much we fall short. Okay, so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says things like, You have heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, if anyone has anger in his heart, he is guilty of murder. Luther says, nobody can follow that. And so what that should do to us is for us to repent and to recognize our need for God's forgiveness and our desperate need for God. So that's the Lutheran view, that the primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was to reveal to us our need for God and our lack of righteousness. There's a third view, and I'll call it the the political manifesto view. And this interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount sees the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' program for human society. That this is the way that Jesus wanted society ordered, and that right now, Christians should do whatever they can to make sure that the justice that is reflected in the Sermon on the Mount is reflected in the life of society. So that's the political manifesto view. This is Jesus' political speech that he's given to us. Now, all of these views have some, a lot of truth to them. Uh, the future kingdom view, for sure, someday when Christ's rule is made manifest completely on the earth, the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount will be lived out perfectly. For the Lutheran view, for sure, the teachings of the sermon are impossible for us to fully attain, and so our failure to live up to it does reveal to us our need for God. And for sure, the political manifesto view, there's a lot of truth there that we should seek as much as we are able to line up God's purposes for our world in every way, in every part of society. We strive and we long to see for that to happen. But there's a fourth way to view the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes, and it's the way that that I tend to view it. And it doesn't really have a name, and so for simplicity's sake, we'll just... We'll just call it the correct view. <laughs> the correct view, the correct view of the Sermon on the Mount takes really seriously how the Sermon on the Mount ends. The Sermon on the Mount ends with Jesus telling the story of two men, one who built his house on the sand and the other who built his house on the rock. And the rains and the storms came, and the one who built his house on the sand, his house did what? It fell with a great crash. But the one who built his house on the rock, when the rains came and the storms came, what happened? The house stood firm. And Jesus says, whoever listens to and obeys my teaching is like the man who builds his house on the rock. And so the correct view of the Sermon on the Mount is that it is humanly impossible to follow the commands of this sermon. It is impossible, and yet with God all things are possible. And that in our lives, as we seek the help of the Spirit, as we experience His power and authority in our lives, that we can and we will learn to live according to Jesus' teaching in this sermon. We will learn how to turn the other cheek in our lives, and we will learn how to pray for our enemies, and we will learn how to not worry, and we will learn how to give as if the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing. 
We will learn to do our good deeds for God and for God alone, not because we think that that receives his approval, but because we want to and because we love him. Luther was right that our righteousness is as filthy rags in the presence of a perfect and holy God, but it is also true that those who are born again by the Spirit of God are enabled more and more to live obedient lives. So as people who now live at this particular time in God's history, at this time between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and before the second coming of Christ, we always experience our spiritual life. We always experience the kingdom of God in a way that's already here and also not yet fully here. Jesus, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, did bring the kingdom of God to the earth. It began. Jesus, in his ascension to the right hand of the Father, is reigning and ruling right now. His kingdom has come already, but now the kingdom is like a mustard seed hidden in the ground. Sometimes it's really hard. Actually, it's sometimes impossible to see but it's doing real work. It's germinating and it's taking root and it's growing. Or Jesus says that his kingdom is like yeast working its way through a batch of dough. You can't see the yeast, but it is doing its work, right? It is working all through the batch of dough and making that dough into something wonderful. But the kingdom has not yet fully come. The seed has not yet sprouted out of the ground. The dough isn't yummy bread yet. And so as we live at this time in God's history, we live in this already and not yet of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God has come, but has not yet come in all of its fullness. We experience it, we see it, but we wait in hope for its fullness to come. And this already and not yet reality is a part of each of our own hearts, right? We experience this in your own life in Christ. His kingdom reign, his rule has come into your life. But it hasn't come completely, has it? There are still areas of your life that you are holding on to, that you want to be Lord over, There are hurts and habits and hang-ups, right, that you have not yet fully given to your king. But increasingly, more and more each day, you are giving those things to him. More and more, his rule in your life, his reign in your life, his kingdom come in your life is becoming more and more of a reality. Because he who began the work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. When he returns, we will see him face to face, and we will be completely purified, completely renewed, and the fullness of his rule will then be a reality in all its fullness. So that's a really long way to explain the structure and outline of the Beatitudes. The first and the last Beatitude tell us that the blessed person already, right now, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's already a reality. The rule of God has come in their life. But the six promises in the middle remind the blessed person that here in this world that we are still waiting for its fullness. 
that we are people who live in faith and in hope of a greater thing that is still yet to come. Does that make sense? And so this is the challenge for us today as we consider the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. What is it in your life that you have not fully submitted to the rule and reign of God? What is your hurt or habit or hang-up that you are holding on to? What is the I am statement that you make about yourself? It's keeping you from your full identity in Christ. What is that thing that someone said or did to you years and years ago that continues to speak into your mind and keeping you from finding your full identity in Christ? That thing that was said to you or done to you that tells you that you aren't good enough? Or what is that thing that you did a long time ago that you have not released to him and experienced his gracious love and forgiveness? What is it in your life right now? What is that sin right now that keeps coming back over and over again that you keep falling to over and over again? And because you feel like such a failure, you feel like God could never accept you. It keeps you from prayer. It keeps you from the study of the word because you're so ashamed to come into his presence. What is it in your life? Today is the day to submit all of those things to him. I believe today that Jesus Christ is Lord over your life. He is Lord over your life. I believe that he knows you and he loves you and he wants to be your king He wants you to lead you into a life that is blessed, full, completely happy, because life in Christ is the good life. So what would it look like for you today? What do you need to do today to take this thing, this hurts or this habit or this hang up, whatever it is, that thing that was done to you or that thing that you did, that thing that was said to you or that thing that you said to someone else, what would it like, look like for you today to take it and to offer it up to your Lord and ask him to bring his grace and his mercy and his healing into your life today? We'd like to take a minute of, of silence for us to simply be quiet and to ask the Lord to reveal What is the thing in my life that I have not yet given fully to the Lord? To simply be silent, and then I'm going to pray, and uh, the worship team can come on forward, and after that prayer, we'll we'll sing. So let's take a, a minute to be silent and to simply ask the Lord to speak to us and to show us what it is in our life that we need to fully offer to him. God in heaven, when your son came into the world, he said that the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. We thank you. We thank you that your kingdom, your rule, your reign, your lordship can be a reality to any of us today who will turn from our own way and who will turn to you. 
Lord, I pray for anyone today who is here in this room who has never done that, not for the first time. Lord, I pray that today that they would hear your word spoken to them, that they would turn and find life that comes from you. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us, those of us who have been walking with you for a week or two, and those who have been walking with you for decades and decades, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to each one of us the things in our life that are keeping you, keeping us from you, that are keeping us from true blessedness and happiness. Lord, show us how we are seeking happiness in other things and help us to see that it's truly found in you. But I ask all of these things for the sake of my brothers and sisters in this room. I ask that you administer to them and do your work in them today. I pray this for me in my own life. Lord, I pray that your lordship would be very real to us today and each day. In Jesus' name, amen.